Well, I want to I want to commend you, church, for two things. Now, not just two, but right now two. Okay. Uh, number one, at, if it wasn't enough to be able to baptize seven young followers of Christ today to hear this church celebrate their baptism. Um, there's a lot of churches that golf clap when things like that happen. Um, but what is a golf clap even anymore? If you watch TV and you see some famous golfer hit a long putt, what do the people there do? They don't golf clap anymore. They scream and hoop and holler, don't they? And what we just saw was better than any touchdown ever scored on the face of this earth. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it's worth getting excited about. So I commend you. Thank you. Praise the Lord for your response. And may that continue to well up in our hearts until Jesus comes again where we will scream out and cry out and praise like we never have before. Uh, secondly, I promised you too. Um, thank you for your service yesterday. I'm going to tell you right now, the message today is from John chapter 2 and it's about the temple needing to get cleared out. And last night... In this place, the opposite of what was happening at the temple was taking place. So just before we get into this, I want you to know that yesterday you honored the Lord. And you welcomed in people who needed to hear about Jesus Christ. They didn't have to pay anything for it. They weren't ridiculed for it. They were not shamed. They were not looked at as inferior. They were loved. And they were given things. And uh, they were given the gospel. They were given the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, uh, amen. And praise the Lord for his ministry through us and through this church. May he be glorified by it. Uh, thank you for obeying Jesus and being a part of that. Okay? Now, years ago, uh, our family went to a, a store called the Shoe Carnival. You ever heard of the Shoe Carnival before? The Shoe Carnival, it's a, it's a place where there's all kinds of shoes of all types. This is a, a store in Champaign, Illinois that we were at. And back then, they had this thing where they would spin a wheel or something like that, and, and whatever department of the shoe store came up, that was for the next 10 minutes or so. It felt like one minute at the time. But every 10 minutes or so, that would be the aisle that was on sale. Okay, so you're a shopper in the shoe carnival, and you're walking through the store, and, and the aisle 7 children's athletic footwear comes up, and a girl that was working there that day would say, Hey, shoppers! For the next 10 minutes, aisle 7, that children's athletic shoe wear is 10% off. And then every time she'd say, don't miss out. And then it's like real drawn out, you know, kind of obnoxious kind of sound in a way. Don't miss out. Every time. 10 minutes later, it was uh, men's dress shoes. Don't miss out. 10 minutes later, it was ladies' uh, dress shoes. Don't miss out. You get the idea? Every 10 minutes. And we have a couple of kids in our family. So... Sometimes when we go shoe shopping, we have to tell the neighbors we're going to be gone for a while, you know what I mean? And so we heard, don't miss out, give or take a hundred times, maybe. Give or take a hundred, but we heard it many, many, many times. So much so that I still think of it today to share with you as an illustration. But whenever we hear somebody say, don't miss out, there is one thing that comes to our minds. And Jess and I will look at each other and smile. And we'll know exactly what we're talking about, what we're thinking about. Don't miss out. Well, in this passage today, the Jewish leaders missed out. Big time. 
And there is going to be an element of this message today by nature of the text where I'm going to say to you and to myself and my own heart, don't miss out. Okay, so there's going to be some don't be like that part of this message today. Uh, But please know I'm preaching this this way on the heels of the two commendations I just gave to you. And knowing that every one of our hearts needs to be reminded of these things daily, including my own. And part of my uh, even desire to speak this way to you is, is just knowing that in my own heart I need to inspect myself. And I need to regularly root out the things that make me selfishly motivated. And so I'm going to ask us today as we go through this text, as wonderful as yesterday was and as wonderful as this service has been so far, let's make it continue to be wonderful by humbly inspecting ourselves, letting God reveal things to our hearts from his word. Amen? Let's keep growing and keep becoming more like Christ. As we get ready for this, let's get some history and some background. All the way back to Genesis 17. We're going to look through the Old Testament real briefly, real fast. In Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, I will be God to you and your offspring after you. I will be their God. Exodus 6, fast forward. God says to Israel, the nation, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And then Joshua, Joshua 24, they're in the land. Uh, Conquest has been taking place. Joshua is about to be done in his uh, service. His life is nearing an end, uh, his worldly life. In Joshua 24, 15, it says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua says it to the people, right? And in verse 24, the people say, The Lord... Our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And then two chapters later, Judges chapter 2, verse 2, God says to Israel, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's quick, right? They say at the end of Joshua, which is right before the Judges starts, that period, God will be our God, we will follow him and obey his voice. And beginning of the next book, God says, you've not obeyed my voice. Okay? And in the time of the judges, Israel falls into sin. God allows for judgment through neighboring nations. Israel cries out to God for help. God intervenes, rescues people. They praise God until they don't and start that process all over again. Remember the book of Judges? It's just cycle over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And the book of Judges, remember, is not about how awesome all those judges were. The book of Judges is about how awful all those judges were and how they fell short how they fell short. And the narrative through the judges has that same pattern. The people's eyes and hearts would be fixed on what was right in front of them, their temporal, physical needs, their wants, their desires, the way other peoples and nations dealt with their needs seemed to work well. So let's worship their gods, and on and on. But when things got really bad, when it was more than they felt they could handle on their own, then they remembered God. Then they got stuck. They got stuck in that horizontal mindset until they were humbled enough into turning back to God. Uh, This pattern continued with King Saul. Remember that Israel said that they wanted a king just like all the other nations. At times, remember this happened with David, uh, definitely with Solomon, and then with really most of all the kings thereafter, some of them never once turning to God. Until the biggest moments of judgment came on the nation of Israel. Remember that 
eventually, hundreds of years later, the northern kingdom is, it's, remember, it's split. The kingdom divided. The northern kingdom is defeated, conquered by the Assyrians. Later on, the southern kingdom is defeated and conquered by the Babylonians. And Israel ceases to exist as a nation. This is all that period of the Old Testament in a nutshell. They ceased to exist as a nation. And though the nation no longer existed, God's people never did cease to exist. And and number 70 years after that Babylonian conquest, their time of exile, they were allowed to return to their homeland. They were given permission by the emperors to build a wall around the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Remember Nehemiah and Ezra and uh, a governor named Zerubbabel, who was actually in the line of Christ during that time period. But they were never given their own nation. They were never given their own kingdom. And over time, after that, their zeal to not return to their former ways of spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery, as God would term it, and their yearning to once again exist as their own nation, not under the rule of another empire, it pushed them in a new direction. In the beginnings of the Old Testament, it was other gods that they would go after and serve to get their physical temporal needs. Later on in the Old Testament, and even to that intertestamental period between the end of Malachi and when Jesus came, it was a different, different kind of ballgame for them. They loved the law. Right? They loved the law. The law was their law. Not the law of the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. It was theirs. It reminded them of their distinct nature. It reminded them they were set apart by God from all other peoples, all other nations. It was a source for them of national pride. And, And probably in the beginning a good kind of national pride at first, but pretty soon it just became another source of pride. And that pride soon resulted in a turning upside down of the purpose of the law. It was made to point them to God and to teach them of their need for mercy and grace from him. But instead, it became a way to isolate them from the rest of the world. And they grew to possess this sense of entitlement. We are more special. We are God's people. And self-righteousness. We can do this. We can keep the law. We are God's people. We are the sons of Abraham. Moses is ours. So there was entitlement and self-righteousness. And this means that they all but forgot, at least this one part of the law, among others in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34, where it says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This was the law of Israel. And you might say, but, 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 or the Israelites would have said more like, but, but, but. And it's lovely that God puts at the end of this, I am the Lord your God. In case you're thinking about uh, not obeying this command, I am the Lord your God. Dad, do I have to clean your room? I am your father. (laughs) He says this to the children of Israel. And this is going to come up later in this passage today, this command. Uh, The nation of Israel was built to showcase the glory of God to the world so that all could come in and see and follow him. It wasn't about just the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people were made the nation of Israel, and they were put in the prime real estate of the world in that time. Anybody who wanted to trade with anybody else had to come through the promised land. And as they passed through, what should they have seen on display? The glory of God. 
And instead what they saw was a people unto themselves, hoarding for themselves with a spirit of entitlement and self-righteousness. They had forgotten what their purpose was. Now because the Jews could not have their own king, but they were able to keep their law so long as it didn't interfere with the laws of the empires that they were under, the lines between political and spiritual authority were all blurred up. Okay, And most likely the fact that there was always the presence of foreign political power being exerted on their land, it made these religious leaders all the more powerful in the eyes of the people. Remember that God was the king of Israel, and the law in the Old Testament is literally the law of the nation of Israel. And so where we might think in America of the idea of the separation of church and state, God was the king. And so the question of the power that should be given to these religious leaders, especially when we're under the authority of the Romans or the Greeks or whomever, it made it difficult. It made it difficult. By the middle of the second century B.C., about halfway between the last prophecy of Malachi and the birth of Christ, uh, the group called the Sanhedrin, you hear about them in the Gospels, the Sanhedrin was formed. And with it... Uh, groups called the Essenes, more familiar, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. So in this intertestamental period when other people are reigning over the Jewish people and they do not have their own nation, but they want to have it desperately, a governing body pops up around 170 B.C. And with it, not political parties, that wouldn't be a good close comparison, but enough to put it in our minds. The idea of a Pharisee and a Sadducee and an Essene. They have different beliefs and they work together and they kind of, a, in a sense, a localized government for the people. In the main event every year, we're almost done with this part, okay? Now we're going to school right now, but we're almost done with this part. Uh, the main event every year was the Passover, where Jews from all over the region and all over the world would return to Jerusalem to worship. Millions of people. There was never a time when there were not tens of thousands of Jews in the temple during the Passover time. The question, though, would have to be asked, who would they started to worship? Who would they started to worship? When these tens of thousands of people are always in the temple at all times, uh, realize that they're paying temple taxes, they are buying sacrificial animals, they are needing services. And so for a people who had repeatedly gotten stuck in the past, in the horizontal, who previously had gone to foreign gods and false gods to meet their needs, they had forgotten to see God as glorious, now, in this time when Jesus comes on the scene, it wasn't other gods that had distracted them. It was their own religion. And it had put a veil in front of their face. Their religion had now found a way to obstruct their view. The Messiah comes and was manifesting his glory. Remember we said last week in Cana and in throughout his ministry? But there was now a different type of glory that they were after. And it blinded them to the glory that, that, that they had desired of the God who they said they revered. Does that make sense? So with all of that background, thank you for your patience and listening through that. With all of that background, let's pray together as we go into the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is accurate, that it has been preserved, that we know what it says and can have confidence in it. God, thank you for your faithfulness. We acknowledge as uh, mankind, we have not been faithful. We have changed. We run. We do the opposite things of what we ought, and yet you have a steadfast love for us. 
And you promise to hold on to us that nothing will ever pluck us out of your hand. And you promise to work in us, to, to sanctify us and complete the work that you started in us in Philippians 1. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the promise to build your church. We thank you for this church. God, help us today not just to point our fingers at the Pharisees. Help us today to see our own hearts. Lord, please use this passage to open our eyes. Uh, Convict us in the spirit as we need. Right where we need. God, may we see you as more glorious than anything that we might find to be more appealing. Help us remember that the church exists for your glory. Give us grace to glorify your name today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is John chapter 2, and I'm starting in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus, remember, his ministry was three years long, so there's four Passovers. One, This one, potentially, and then year one goes by, so Passover 2, year 2 to Passover 3, year 3 to Passover Four And who was the sacrificial lamb at Passover 4? Jesus. <laughs> right? Now, there are different recordings of this cleansing of the temple, or two, potentially. John has this uh, uh, narrative in the front part here in chapter 2. Uh, the other Gospels have it later on, as if to be nearer to the end of his ministry. So maybe Passover number 3. And remember, Gospels are not written like we would expect a biography today. If you pick up a biography today at the bookstore or at a library, you're going to expect it to be chronological in order. You're going to want to read about their birth, their childhood, their adolescence, their young adult years, and on and on and on, right? But that's not the norm of this time, and it's not the purpose of the Gospels. So uh, the Gospel writers could and in trying to help us to understand who Jesus is, pick and choose different events in the life of Christ and things that he taught, things that he did, and put them in an order in such a way to help us to have a very clear idea of who Jesus is, because that's what they wanted to do, right? They wanted to give us information so that we would believe in him. And so it's possible that Jesus did this once, and that John just put it towards the beginning of his gospel, and it's possible that Jesus did it twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once towards the end. Would you like to know which is right? Me too. Okay, moving on. It does say that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. When we say we're going up, we think up north, right? Because we're Michiganders. I'm a recent convert to being a Michigander, and I've learned that going up north means going up north. In Israel, you went up to Jerusalem regardless of where you were geographically because Jerusalem was up. Elevation. There's a mountain ridge that runs down the eastern side of Israel, and Jerusalem was up on a high peak of that, and so everybody went up to Jerusalem, okay? So even when you read in the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, those were sung by the Jews going up, ascending up to Jerusalem, okay? Fun fact for the day. Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. It's good for us to know that the priest had become known to be especially picky in their acceptance of animals for sacrifice. They had to be spotless, spotless, without blemish, without any broken bones. They had to be perfect, right? And who got to decide whether they were perfect or not? The priests. And they were especially picky. And it just so happened that they had animals for sale. <laughs> you see where this is going? 
And so if you were coming home, pilgriming a pilgrimage from, from Italy or from back, back in those days, Rome, you had all that distance to travel. You had an animal to bring. You had to feed it the whole way there, all the bother of taking an animal that far. What were you going to do instead? Just go buy one there, right? It made sense for everybody, and it was obviously lucrative for the temple. Uh, these services listed existed outside of the temple previously. So when they started to do this, it was outside of the temple. People realized the need. Uh, they went into business in such a way during that time period every year. Uh, but over time, the people who were running the temple saw an idea pop in their mind, and they brought in all of these businesses. And now, if you were running that business, wouldn't you have rather been closer to the location? Location, 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 Right? And they were given the green light to come into the temple for a fee. Okay, you see where this is going. It gets, it gets better, okay? It gets better. Uh, the money changers, they were necessary because the temple would not accept specific currencies for the surrounding peoples, okay? Uh, for the temple tax or for the purchase of any other needed animals. Those coins, remember when Jesus said, whose image and likeness is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. Well, Caesar called himself a god. Well, that's idolatrous, and it is. But the people who worked at the temple said, you cannot use idolatrous money here. That money is not fit for use in the temple. We'll help you. We'll set up a currency exchange in the temple. And you can exchange all of your currency for a currency that we will accept for a fee. This is what was happening. And all of this within the temple. Within the temple. And not just within the temple. All of these things were happening. Think about this. They were thinking of themselves, right? All of these were happening in the court of the Gentiles. This was happening in the court of the Gentiles. Guess who probably didn't feel welcomed at the temple? The Gentiles. Remember, the people had become very self-centered and self-focused. This was their thing. Nobody else is really desired to be here. So what do we care if we use the court of the Gentiles to run our own business for our own profit? This is pretty gross, isn't it? But this is what's happening in the temple at this time. Remember, God had given Israel uh, the greatest gift is that they had him. One of their functions was to be a light to the world. And instead, they were withholding that light for their own sordid gain. So Jesus acts, verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. How dare he? (laughs) Wait. Wait, wait, wait. What did he do? Uh, Does Jesus sin? Of all the men on the face of the earth, who could righteously be angry? Probably Jesus handled that well, I would say. Uh, But think about this too. When you think about uh, Jesus cleansing the temple, and you think about how he did this, what do you envision? I would often envision Jesus coming in, his face all red with his whip, just going to town, like Indiana Jones or something like that, right? And, and throwing those tables and yelling and screaming and kicking and, and all that kind of stuff. But hold on. The Greek word for cords is rope. Rope. 
This was not Indiana Jones. This was not a Roman cat of nine tails. Jesus took some rope and just wound them together and probably used them for the animals. <laughs> I would suspect it doesn't say that he, like, hurt anybody. And he turned these tables over because of where they were and what they were doing. When should, that have, when should those businesses have ceased to exist? Immediately. Immediately. And think about this. There are tens of thousands of people in this place. There's a lot of money to be made and to be had. And Jesus walks into this place, puts some rope together, and clears it out. Would you need maybe more than some rope and some words to clear out a place like that? And if you attempted to, what would happen? Somebody might grab you. Somebody might arrest you. There might be a little bit of a mob. Why wasn't there? Uh, I would say to you probably because he was, and is, God. God said, no. And when a sovereign God says, uh, no, guess what happens? It stops. Yeah, it stops. Uh, so I don't think it's too far-fetched for us to say that a miracle occurred here. Something that we couldn't have done with a rope and some words, Jesus got done. Does that make sense? So it makes sense that John would put this together with turning the water into wine. This is Jesus doing things that men cannot do. He's working miracles. This is a display of his authority. A display of his authority. Verse 16, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He's saying much more than just that here, because in Zechariah 14, 21, it says, There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. A traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R. Not a traitor like T-R-A-I-T-O-R, okay? A traitor like these guys were doing. And this is the second coming prophecy in Zechariah. Nobody gets to say these things or have these kinds of authority but God himself. Jesus is saying more than get out. He's saying, I am. In verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is another messianic prophecy from Psalm 69.9. So given the requirements of divine authority to do these things that Jesus was doing, it makes sense that the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, would ask him what they do in verse 18. They say to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? Show us a sign. Prove this to us, that you can do these kinds of things. In a sense, they're saying to him, who do you think you are? Trying to accomplish this, saying these things that you're saying. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And destroy here, the way it's written, is an imperative command. Destroy this temple. I don't think he was being sinfully sarcastic, obviously, here, but it's as if he's saying, go ahead and try it. <laughs> destroy this temple. And destroy what temple? We know, and we're going to see here a little bit later, he's talking about something else besides the structure that they're standing within. He's talking about his body. His body. Remember that they would say later on that he said he would destroy the temple when they were looking for cause for his crucifixion and they couldn't find any. And look at what it says there. Who did Jesus say was going to raise up the temple? Destroy this temple and in three days 
he says, I will raise it up. We can't do that. Amen? And Jesus was involved in his own resurrection. He's involved in his own resurrection. Realize that the resurrection is the linchpin of our uh, basis, our understanding, our proof of our faith. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are of most of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we shouldn't be here today. If he did, and he did, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He has defeated death and hell, and we have eternal life. Verse 20. The Jews then said, remember they've got a veil over their eyes, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Herod's temple, if they're in here right now, had been under construction for 46 years. And they're obviously not thinking about the physical structure. But, verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Revelation 21:22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. John 4, 21 to 23, the Samaritan woman, remember, she was wanting to debate the location where people should be worshiping. The Samaritans thought we should be worshiping here. The Jews think we should be worshiping at Jerusalem. And Jesus eliminates that idea because he is the presence of God. He is the culmination of the purpose of the temple. In John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Where did the Jews go to the Father on the earth? It was at the temple. And the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood, to to make a provision for their sin. But you don't need the Holy of Holies anymore because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is Bethel, the house of God. He is God in the flesh. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to meet with God, go to Jesus. It isn't a religious exercise. It's a person. Uh, We don't perform rituals and go uh, to places and just to meet with God or to be pardoned by God. We run to Jesus. We believe in his finished work at the cross and his glorious resurrection, proving that he really is who he said he is. And he calls us and he forgives us and he changes us and he gives us life. It is by grace through faith we are saved, not because of our own works. What does the next part say in in Ephesians 2.9? So that none of us have any reason to boast. Nobody's patting their back when they get to heaven and saying, God, look at how amazing I was. That's not how it works. When therefore he was raised from the dead, John gives us some foreshadowing here and telling us what happens in the future. His disciples remembered what he'd said and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed the scripture. Remember, uh, they remembered Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. And the word that Jesus had spoken from verse 16 was Zechariah 14.21, that messianic prophecy that he shared. The scriptures, Jesus' actions, Jesus' words, all point to one right response. He's the Messiah. Believe. That's the response. 
We either look to all of this and see it as a threat to what we have going, like the Jewish leaders did, and like all who reject Christ, or we see the glory of it. We see the glory of our Savior, and we believe. And believing we are saved and given eternal life. What have you done? What will you do? Will you see Jesus as glorious, as God the Son, the crucified and risen Savior and Lord? If you do, if you confess your sins and ask him to save you, he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will make you a new creation. He will give you life. If you haven't, put your faith and trust in Christ today. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, and he rose from the dead. He is our risen Savior. Put your faith and trust in Christ today. In church, we cannot look at a passage like this and not look at our own lives and our own practices. Here's where we need to really humble ourselves and ask ourselves some thoughtful and serious questions. And before we can do that, we have to remember this. In our own nature... We are just as bad as the Jewish leaders in this passage. Jesus said to them often, Woe to you. And church, woe to us if we think we are superior to them. Pride comes before the fall. And because we are prone to be just as bad, we are prone to make the same kinds of mistakes. Remember, they were worshiping God in name. And they used, though, religion to veil their eyes. The, ma- the major mistake that they made was to take what God had given to point people to him and twist it and turn it into something that pointed everyone to them. They pursued their own selfish interest. And because they were manipulatively using God's name and plan to meet their own selfish wants, they were able to do three things. Number one, they missed the manifestation of the glory of God right in front of their eyes. That's a major first thing. They missed it. The Son of God was right there in front of their eyes, and they missed it. Secondly, they alienated their own people from God. Morale wouldn't be too high, if you think about it, if people know that in going to the temple, which is something they have to do, they're really only appeasing and filling the pockets of the religious leaders that has a way of dampening spirits. And then number three, perhaps would have made the heart of God most angered, they alienated the rest of the world from God. The Gentiles coming to the temple would come and, and they were given by God a place in the temple where they could be close to God, where they could learn of God and as a foreigner and stranger in the land could become a part of the people of God. Ruth was a Moabitess. Do you remember that? She was not a Hebrew person. Did she become a Jew? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And who was in her line? David. And eventually, Jesus Christ. This was not God's plan. I mean, the part about Jesus coming through, yeah, that was part of God's plan. But the way they were conducting themselves was not God's plan. And all of this was in the name of worshiping God, in the name of being mature, godly, respectable religious leaders. God, help us to not fall into that same trap. They felt spiritual. They felt 
godly, and they were very wrong. They were wrong. And Jesus called them hypocrites. Hypocrites. And what would this look like today in the church? Uh, For the pastor, maybe thinking about just people and money. Getting the crowds. Getting a big name. uh, Getting success, quote-unquote. Becoming rich. Fulfilling the American dream from behind the pulpit. That would be wrong. For people... For all of us, me included, uh, desiring entertainment, desiring to be a, a, a place of networking. There was a time and may still be where it was very fruitful for your business to be a member of a church. You realize that? A lot of people, especially true in the South, people would go and become members of church not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus, but wanting to have everything to do with the business of the fellow parishioners. We could selfishly want to desire through the church our own hobbies and interests to gain the approval of man, sometimes to earn God's grace, which, by the way, is an oxymoron. You can't earn grace. Uh, How would we view and how would I view, I'll make it I, how would I view my preaching? If I'm thinking selfishly, how would I rate it as a success? Uh, How will I view music? A synopsis of this, the term worship wars. 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 Wars? Wars over music. What is its purpose? How will I view youth and children's ministry? Who's here for who? And think about this. As we think about a ministry to the uh, least of these, we might think about children, might think about children who are struggling. Are they coming here for us? So that we can have a nice time? Or are we coming here for them? To give them the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is our motivator? We've got to make sure that we continually ask ourselves those questions. How will we view church buildings? And for us, this one. Are our church building monuments? Are our buildings monuments? Or are they places to serve and point people to, to Jesus? How will I view giving? Is it my money or is it God's? Am I a steward or not? How will I view new people? Are they going to mess up our vibe? Let's make it our vibe to have new people. How will I view membership? Is it like the Sam's Club? Coming to buy, sell, and consume, or is it something much, much more than that? If we get caught up into the trap of thinking that this church exists for our own good pleasure, we will get these three things— Miss God's glory. There'll be nothing to see here. We will alienate our own people and we will alienate the world. Sound familiar? Why would someone want to come to a church where all they are doing is the same thing the rest of the world is doing? Is that the world is saying, if it's all about me, then I'll go where I like it. And we have to be careful that that's not what we're doing. After we give them a firm rebuke for not being just like us, if we do that kind of a thing, shame on us. And it would be right for them, wouldn't it, to call us a hypocrite. This is tough, isn't it? If you're here today and you're a sinner, welcome. Welcome. I've heard this say it. I'll, I'll, I'll say it as if somebody else said it and not me. <laughs> 
I've heard somebody say, welcome to our church. You can sit right amongst all the hypocrites and backbiters because we're all already here. (laughs) And if we're all honest and humble, we've all been there. Every one of us has been there. What is the purpose of church? What is the purpose of worship? Worship is ascribing worth to God. May he increase and I decrease. We become like Jesus by beholding him. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We must see him as glorious. Jesus didn't come so that we could find ourselves. He didn't come so that all of our wildest dreams could come true. He was glorified on the cross, not me. So we are at our best as a church when he is best in our hearts. We don't get to decide whether God's on the throne or not, but we do well to remember that he is. And who benefits from this mentality? Who benefits from this? Thinking back to the consequences of self-centered temple worship or even a self-centered church. Here's the answer. Everyone benefits. We benefit. And we've got to be careful with that, right? But we benefit uh, because we're actually saved and growing and enjoying God and serving him. And that's where our joy will be found. Not in getting stuff, but in doing what we were made to do. Being who God created us to be as a new creation in Christ, that's where our joy will be found. We benefit. Our church benefits because we are here to serve one another and not to get what we can out of everyone else. Our children benefit. They can see us loving God and loving each other instead of just being pressured uh, in their own hearts, feeling like they're being pressured to keep what they might rightly perceive to be the family tradition of empty religion. Let's make sure that our kids hear and see the gospel loud and clear here at First Baptist Church. And the world benefits. We are the body of Christ. We are the city that is set on a hill. They need to see Jesus. Let's be a church that shows Jesus to the world. Psalm 67 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Remember the veil that covered so people couldn't see the glory shining? May his, make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known to the earth, your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you. Peoples meaning different nations of the world. Let them praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. You know what would make the nations gladder than anything else? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. So how do we respond? There's only one man who has the ability and the authority to clear out that temple with his words and a little rope. And it's Jesus. And there's only one who has the authority to tell us what the purpose of this church is, and it's Jesus. Church, let's search our hearts. Search our hearts. I said before, there are so many good things. There are so many good things. And let's keep searching our hearts. Because we can have more good things. And we can turn good things bad real fast. You know that? Let's keep searching our hearts and be humble in that way. If we were to ask who the Lord is of this church, we would all know the Sunday school answer. Well, Jesus is the Lord of our church, of course. Let's continue to make that a reality. A reality. And I'm not telling you, maybe you've heard the phrase, to put God on the throne of your heart. You don't get to tell God where to go. 
He doesn't go, oh, okay, I'll go there. Thanks. <laughs> that's not a very good God voice, is it? Because that's not how that works. Have we submitted ourselves to him? Have we submitted ourselves to him and acknowledged him as Lord? Have I rejected my own foolishness and my deceived effort and let the Lord be the Lord of my life? This is what we need. One of my favorite songs, my favorite old hymns is called Cleanse Me. Or Search Me, O God, depending on what hymnal you have. I want to read you the lyrics real quick and then we'll be done. First verse is, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. Know my heart, know my thoughts. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. Is it possible for us to be blind to our own blindness? God help us. I praise thee, Lord, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill thy word and make me pure within. Fill me with fire where once I burned with shame. Grant my desire to magnify your name. Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart. Not like, oh, poor little old me. Like, my heart is poor. <laughs> Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, myself, and my pride. I now surrender, Lord, in me abide. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. It's not going to be because we're awesome or because we preach some great message or because we think some great thoughts or say some great things. Revival comes from him. This is perhaps my favorite couplet in the, in the song here. Send a revival. Start the work in me. Thy word declares thou wilt supply our need. That's not the American dream. That's our needs. That's Matthew 6. For blessings now, O Lord, I humbly plead. Let's pray together. God, you are so very good to us. We don't, I don't often think of your goodness, of the depth of it, your love for us that is uh, initiated by you. You did not look at me or any other person in this room and think, that one is special, that one deserves my love. Because it's not true of any one of us. God, we thank you for your love for your steadfast love, for your promise and your commitment to make us to be like Christ, that we could be your children. And God, help us as we walk individually, but as a church. God, may we magnify your name. God, give us humble hearts, a love for you of our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength a love for our neighbor. There is no court of the Gentiles in this place because we are the church and you, Jesus, are the temple. But God, if we were to have one, I pray that it would be wide open and ready with open arms to receive anyone who you would bring. 
May the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ be on the tip of our tongue at all times because we love people. God, help us to glorify you and you alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.